Welcome everyone to Watch Challenge. On each episode, we challenge ourselves to find and watch a film of a particular type and then report back the results to each other and you find listeners. My name is Mike Went. And I'm Aaron Spears. And this episode's challenge is Film Noir. It is November. Sad to say the uh, the horror uh, has has stopped. The horror month has stopped. Um, yes. Actually, I'm still catching up on a few extra ones. But it was good <laughs> to switch gears. I uh, went through a lot of horror throughout the month of October. We are in November. As I mentioned in the last episode, I, I felt like I was derelict in my film geek duties. I did not hear of November for some reason until last year. No, I I didn't even know that was a thing. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I don't feel as bad then. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it just like took off more last year or because like I asked a few other like Film Geek friends. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Or they were just lying to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, these obviously, uh, la- you know, in last episode with uh, the, the Giallo or Giallo or Giallo, however, however you say it. Uh, was kind of a challenge, but this was this one was uh, was challenging, but in a fun way. Uh, just because I have seen quite a few of these, and uh, you know, there there are just so many. Um, this is like when some of our probably uh, most famous directors, you know, started to sink their teeth into uh, into filmmaking. Uh, you know, you look at say. Um, Stanley Kubrick and, and Orson Welles and, and uh, you know, quite a few of those type filmmakers that, that got into it. And it's, uh, you know, Billy Wilder, you know, for example. You oh, know, yeah, yeah. Alfred Hitchcock, of course. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, just such, so many iconic uh, people came from these. Uh, and, you know, it sure. seemingly seems like a lot of these were like kind of lower budget and, you know, oh, in yeah. the scheme of things. Well, and looking into like the history of it, and and it's a very broad, uh, very broad topic. I'm I almost said genre there, and I wanted to stop myself because it's like a style of film, not necessarily <laughs> a genre. Um, so it's definitely something we I think we'll be revisiting the life of the show because there's like all the spinoffs of like neo noir or. I focus pretty much on like classic Hollywood noir, but like there's, oh, yeah. there's French noir, there's Japanese noir, there's any country that's making movies, you know, probably has some sort of a noir aspect uh, to somewhere in their film history. So uh, I think that'll be interesting to kind of revisit maybe in future Novembers or, you know, if we want to do, uh, you know, we get, it's, it's a topic we can revisit without just being specifically uh, film noir in the future. Looking into it though, I, I, I don't remember this being covered as a, style of filmmaking too much when I was in college studying film. Uh, but it could be, I just didn't take one of those classes. Um, yeah. Uh, cause I know there was one on the Hollywood blacklist that I just never was able to fit into my schedule. And I will be mentioning that with some of my picks here, but I was like, wait, okay. So then what's the etymology here? Film noir came from where? And of course, if you know, anybody is a, uh, into languages out there, noir is not an American or uh, an English word, you know, it is French came from a French, actually an Italian born French film critic, Nino Frank, uh, who kind of coined the term meaning black film or dark film. It overlaps really well with the, like the French new wave idea where during world war II, France, there was like an embargo. They were occupied by the Nazis. They weren't getting new American films into France. Then after world war II, it's like, well, we got all these films to catch up on. And there was a flood of films coming into France and uh, Nino Frank in this particular case in 46, he's watching these movies. And he's like, man, there's a lot of these like crime detective dark films. So, you know, a, a French critic notices the trends that wasn't being necessarily picked up on or noticed in the American press. and was like, 
oh, film noir is born. So like it's birthed out of that kind of classic studio period in Hollywood, but not really on purpose necessarily. (laughs) I guess it declared like, I mean, they were making crime films and detective films, but uh, getting the actual label film noir took like an outsider looking at this trend going like, well, now that I can watch all this stuff in a row or, you know, I'm catching up on years of, of, of Hollywood films, I'm noticing some trends here. Yeah. Uh, should we mention a few of these trends before we jump in? Film noir trends, uh, uh, yeah. iconic uh, aspects of the style. Yeah, I would say so. Um, so we got like the anti-hero, usually a detective, if not a detective, some sort of a private eye. A lot of general themes of like fear, mistrust, paranoia, uh, bleakness. There's a lot of these stories are pretty bleak. <laughs> like yeah. not a lot of happily ever after at the end of a uh, film noir. Definitely black and white. Like this is an era of like high contrast um, black and white film stock. Oh, I'm totally drawing a blank. There was one I was reading about the other day. They called it panchromatic. Yeah. Uh, oh, very very stylish. Yeah. yeah. Very stylish. A lot, lot of fog. So, you know, there was probably somebody with, you know, working that, those old fog machines. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, uh, if you go back far enough in Hollywood, it's just like 18 guys on the set, just all smoking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it always seems like um, you know, uh, and not to say that that this is the case, but uh, at least in the in the context of noir films, that sometimes women can be the the catalyst for why some of these these men are on like a downward spiral, or there there might be some kind of romantic triangle. Oh and, yeah, or uh, you know, double crossing. Yes. Yeah, the femme fatales of the the era. Yeah. There's also, um, generally speaking, I know there's like the Postman Always Rings twice and some other ones, but it's generally always like an urban setting as well. Like you're not getting a lot of like film noirs set out in the rural areas. Um, You know, you need like that really oppressive urban landscape, tall buildings, usually rain soaked roads, uh, you know, really reflecting the light off. Definitely murder. There's always seems like some sort of a murder or double cross or a plot or a heist of some sort that, you know, you just assume is going to have a double cross in there somewhere. I always think also, I just instantly think of saxophone music, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like moody saxophone. Yep, uh, <laughs> you are not wrong. <laughs> or at least very ominous uh, scores with, you know, violin scores or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, the when you said saxophone, I was really thinking of actually even... Um, I think probably is true of all of them was I had like a jarring, like bol- like a burst of sax music too. Yeah. Like something happens or a door gets kicked open or someone pulls a gun, um, you know, a burst of, of music there. Not quite jump scare level, but like, you know, hitting that, hitting that saxophone pretty hard. Yeah. And narration seems to be uh, a theme oftentimes like the, like the, the lead character, um, you know, it perhaps if they are private, eye, will have some kind of, you know, it was a Friday and I saw her. At the, oh, you know yeah. What I mean, yeah. like, for sure. Uh, <laughs> so <if> it, like, <laughs> An inner monologue that, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. The dame came in through the door and she. Right. Had, <laughs> 99 <laughs> problems and, you know, whatever. Oh, which also, too, I, Kimley, I didn't even put this in my notes, but like, um, it comes out of a lot of like pulp detective novels, too. Like, you got yes. Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Kane, and it's like some of the classics of that just, you know, I guess at the time dime store nickel paperback kind of things that just, yes. you know, uh, hard boiled detective novels um, or just there were magazines too at the time as well that were just publishing 
you know, hardboiled detective short stories and like, hey, this would make a great, uh, great film. Or if not, just taking those authors, because at that point in time, too, in Hollywood in the 40s, they're pulling in any authors they can get. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, like, spent time in Hollywood. You know, um, I don't know off the top of my head if, like, you know, Hammett was there uh, writing, but they were pulling in a lot of authors. They're like, hey, you write these? Well, turn into a script. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I I did want to note too, like the production code that started in the late thirties or the Hayes code, the production code, whatever you want to call it, the restrictions on what you can and can't show um, in films is in effect. So one of my first instances of watching film noirs or like, Oh, that's a classic one. I need to pop in like Maltese Falcon or something. They'll just say that one. Actually, maybe not be a good one. They would have like, a fairly salacious description of like double cross or a sexy dame or murder or whatever, or a great poster. We're like, Oh wow. Like we talk about the Jallo stuff, like the Jallo stuff really delivered on the promise of some of those awesome posters, I think yeah, content wise, but the film noir ones, you know, some of them that looked a little bit more like risque or uh, shocking were like, well, that's not really in the movie. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the code wasn't allowing you to do, but I would say too, like film noir, the stuff I've seen too, it really did push some boundaries for what you could and couldn't show in a film. Like you weren't supposed to be glorifying, you know, evil or crime or things like that. Uh, but they, they did, Yeah. <laughs> but they were punished or dead by the end. So, you know, that's how they got around some of those. Well, yeah, it's like, there's not, not a lot of blood, but there is, there is a considerable amount of violence in some of these, yeah. but it's like, you know, they, you know, tastefully, do you know incorporate the violence without yeah. a lot of that blow yeah a lot of gunshots and somebody grabs their stomach and then falls right. over their head. <laughs> uh so any uh honorable mentions mike any ones you want to uh shout out before we do our official uh, watch challenge picks absolutely um so my first honorable mention is one of those directors that i mentioned got uh kind of got his start or this was around the time that he got a start was uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Um, just a, a wonderful uh, crime film that, uh, you know, basically revolves around a five-man team who uh, plan to execute this uh, a racetrack robbery. And boy, um, it is highly influential. You know, I'm pretty sure the opening of The Dark Knight was kind of ripped <laughs> almost like verbatim from the killing. And I, you know, I could be wrong, but like, you know, using like the, the, the clown masks and stuff to, um, you know, the, uh, to, to pull off this robbery, but, uh, and it has like, you know, great dialogue, distinctive characters, really great cinematography. I mean, you know, he was early in his career, but, you know, he really showed, um, a great, uh, I mean, just panache behind the camera. And, uh, you know, eventually once he graduated to larger budget things, of course, he became the Stanley Kubrick that, you know, we all know and love, but, uh, that, you know, to me, the, the killing is, uh, is a really great one. And if you find the criterion, um, it also features, I, I guess I'll give a 0.5 here, but uh, uh, Killer's Kiss, which was a movie that was released uh, the year before, uh, which is, it's a noir about, you know, this boxer. Um, I don't recall most of the, the rest of the script, but I just remember I really liked it. Um, you know, the Cinematheque, uh, not that long ago in Cleveland did a, 
a great uh, early film, Stanley Kubrick uh, retrospective, mm-hmm. uh, which include included uh, 35 millimeter prints of like of that film and the killing. Um, so uh, if you can, do, you know, and they're both relatively short. So like, I think uh, killer's kiss is like a little over an hour and the killing's like 90 minutes, but uh, you could do like a great double feature with that. Can't go wrong. I think that's also another hallmark of a lot of film noir too, is like, we're not talking about like two hour and 20 minute. Yeah. You know, opus kind of epic right. ones there. Um, they are, they're, 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 they're tight. They're compact. They're economic. They're just, they're in, they're out. Yeah. I don't remember if I mentioned on the show, I think I have, or that was just maybe chit chat with you, Mike, but I have some directors who only have so many films out there and Stanley Kubrick's one of them. And I'm just, I haven't watched all of their films and I'm saving some cause I don't want to be done with their filmography. Oh, okay. The killing is one of those. I've never. Oh, watched. I, Aaron, I highly, I highly recommend it. I mean, it's November. This may be the time to just cross that one off my list. Yes. It's jump in. Like you'll see uh, just like the way how it had an impact on, I think a lot of crime films that came after it. It's, it's just, it's just pretty awesome. When you said the clown uh, mask thing from dark Knight, um, it being in the killing, as soon as you said that, I, I don't know if it was like a VHS box or something at some point, but I remember that image going along with that movie. I mean, it was a poster online or something that I was like, Oh wait, I can picture that actually. Yeah. It's this stark imagery yeah. in, in that film that, uh, you know, that clearly I think, you know, directors like Christopher Nolan, who are, you know, film geeks to the core, oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, would would see it and you know want to to emulate that. Oh, for yeah, yeah, definitely. How about you? My first honorable mention is um, like my first draft of this list. I was like, oh, I'm I, I adore the actor Richard Widmark. I was like, oh, I could just do all Richard Widmark films. Like, well, that's not a watch challenge, idiot. You got to like let's you know go out, outside of that. That can be an honorable mention, but you know, let's uh, find something new, find something new experience. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll just narrow it down to one. I, I think it might be my favorite of his. He did a whole string of film noirs through um, the uh, the late 40s and into the 50s. I also am a big fan because I took a class all about him when I was in film school of Samuel Fuller, Sam Fuller, the director. So he and Richard Widmark worked together on a film called Pickup on South Street mm. from 1953. It's one of those, like, the plot itself is kind of convoluted <laughs> and it, it touches on a theme that I'm going to really kind of hammer home with my main pick, but his character name is so good. Richard Woodmark. I could watch this guy hustle in film noir movies just for hours. He's so good at like spinning a yarn and he's, he's hustling. He's spinning like eight plates at once. And uh, you know, you're just waiting for like, Oh God, this is not gonna work out. Is it? And you know, it never does. Cause he's a protagonist in a film noir movie. Pick up on South street. He's a New York city pickpocket. Awesome name. His character's name is skip McCoy. Um, so he's a pickpocket and he inadvertently, um, picks up, uh, what are basically, um, classified information that are going amongst a circuit of communists that are trying to get, you know, uh, the FBI is tailing him. So he ends up getting mixed up in this ring of communists and then the FBI is on his tail, they're on their tail, but he's also a hustler. So he kind of knows how to, you know, shifting allegiances and like uh, place blame here and there and moving around. I think it's like there's an ex-girlfriend involved at some point. Yeah. Uh, but she's now running this ring for her new boyfriend. And uh, it's just awesome. It's like double crosses and triple crosses and quadruple crosses. And you just you never know really what uh, where allegiances lie. But Sam Fuller does this great thing where he, he hits all the film noir buttons we just mentioned as far as the aesthetics go. 
but also has you cheering for this like pickpocket who's kind of in over his head, but is clearly capable of conning everybody. <laughs> and Widmark just sells it, man, with just sort of like not really. I mean, we'll talk about sleaze with my other honorable mention, but like not a sleaze level, but just like a, he's just trying to get by, man. He's just, yeah. you know, uh, big city. Uh, everybody's kind of against him, but he's got his own kind of. He's got his own style going. He's got his own beat going. Um, he's living in like a shack by the river, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but there's also this really interesting performance in there. Not the femme fatale performance that uh, Jean Peters does, but um, Thelma Ritter, who people probably remember from like Rear Window or All About Eve. Yeah. Um, as a kid, she was like the uh, lady in uh, America on 34th Street, the older lady. She is like, if you watch The Wire, she has real strong vibes of bubbles. Like the guy who's like, She's not on drugs in the movie necessarily, but she's like on the street. She's selling like bootleg ties or something to guys. But she's the person who knows everybody. And so he goes to her for information. She gives out information. Man, it is just like the most, not depressing, like the most pull at your heartstrings performance. Because like you got this older lady. She's just trying to get by. She's at the center of it. And it everybody's doomed. Like <laughs> this, this movie has not a happy ending for anybody, but. Man, watching the Richard Woodmark hustle and having just like a side character with somebody with the chops of Thelma Ritter as far as acting goes that can really just elevate, you know, a character with five or six scenes. You're just like, man, that really that really hit me, man. That, 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 yeah. was, that was some good work there. But um, yeah, if you haven't seen Pickup on South Street, just top tier film noir. And um, again, like we said, running time, this one is uh, 80 minutes. Wow. It feels like an hour. It is just boom, 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 boom. And you're just like you're in for the hustle and you're just kind of hoping you can make it. Yeah, I'll definitely have to add that uh, to my watch list. But again, it's film noir, so that's a cool errand. My next uh, honorable mention is another one of those directors that I mentioned um, from, in my opinion, brilliant director Orson Welles, uh, Touch of Evil, uh, which stars Charlton Heston, Janet Janet. Uh, Janet Lee, and uh, this at the beginning of the film it features you know one of the longest uh, you know continuous takes uh, you know so it's like that it's like one of those films that often gets shown in like a film class that just shows that the ability that that you could have to capture so much in in one continuous take which I think lasts about six or seven minutes uh, you know the camera kind of swoops all around but. Uh, that is, uh, you know, it's it's a, a story of uh, kidnapping and murder, like you know, right at the uh, the border of Mexico. Um, you know, some of this, uh, I think, from what I've read at at the time, it was kind of dismissed as a B movie. Um, mm. You know, like Orson Welles really hamming it up, and that's when he really started to put on weight. Um, oh, and right. Also, like it was kind of like a almost like. Uh, starting the decline of his career where he was kind of um, angering a lot of like Hollywood types, uh, especially after like Magnificent Ambersons and a couple other things where, you know, he was going over budget. He was kind of getting a little moody um, and then went to France for a while. But this, uh, but this was like one of his last, like, like studio films with universal uh, Charlton Heston is doing like kind of, you know, basically looks like they, they really like made his skin look like he was, <laughs> um, Latin American yeah, yeah. <laughs> or Mexican. Um, and he's kind of given like this accent, but it, it's a really kind of enjoyable pulpy, 
uh, film. Um, you know, that it's another one where they, the Cinematheque did a, uh, an Orson Welles retrospective. Um, and uh, I, I just really enjoyed watching this one again. And, uh, you know, if, if you've never seen this one, I, I would highly suggest it just, uh, it's, I don't know. It just shows like, it's probably the tail end of the, of the height of, of noir um, in the, you know, 58 or so, but really, uh, you know, kind of a little bit trashy, I guess you could say, <laughs> uh, you know, if it's, if it's okay to say about an Orson Welles movie, but, uh, but yeah, definitely um, one that, that I would say is, is on the fun side. Touch of Evil is definitely in that category of I watched it so long ago that might just be like watching it brand new for me at this point. Like I remember watching it after having seen Citizen Kane and just being like, God, this guy could do anything uh, <laughs> yeah. as far as directing goes. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I honestly could. I couldn't really tell you everything that happens in it. I just like just remember liking it, uh, but but I couldn't like spout verbatim what it's about really, <laughs> like without like heavy Wikipedia notes here. But right. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to bore our listeners. But <laughs> well, uh, that actually holds true for my other honorable mention as well. Um, <laughs> this one, uh, so pick up on South Street and. Sweet Smell of Success from 1957 mm. are just two of my five-star, gets a heart, you know, letterbox rating for me, uh, film noir movies. Uh, Sweet Smell of Success, I only watched for the first time maybe like two years ago. Wow. Um, I've been slowly realizing that I'm a huge Burt Lancaster fan. <laughs> and like I mentioned with Kubrick, like I'm not rushing through his film. Well, there's also a lot more to watch when it's Burt Lancaster, but everything from early Burt Lancaster up to like local here. Like I've just like, man, I don't think I've watched a movie where I have not enjoyed a Burt Lancaster performance. <laughs> and I don't know why I put off sweet smell success either, because it's also a subgenre of movies I adore, which we're definitely going to have to tackle at some point, which is like journalism movies, mm -hmm. love some journalism movies. In this case, you've got Burt Lancaster playing JJ Hunsecker, who <laughs> is a, um, what do you call like, kind of a gossip columnist for basically Broadway. So also another love of mine, you know, like live theater. I, supposedly he's based on Walter Winchell. Um, I haven't looked too deeply into that. I don't know if that was just one critic I read that referenced that it's kind of seems like this guy. So <laughs> he has huge sway over Broadway. Like with his column, he reports like gossip, whatever. So he can like make or break your career. And the other co-star of this movie is Tony Curtis, who, uh, speaking of Kubrick, you know, I picture from like Spartacus or, right. you know, other movies he is the sleaziest you'll ever see tony curtis in this movie just like the, he <laughs> uses people like, like oh god it's just gross like he's prostituting out friends of his just because like he can get a favor from somebody else you're like gross man <laughs> but at the same time also this is 57 so we're getting a little bit away from that like, like the production code's still in effect but it's starting to bend a little bit sure um, it's still no more than pg-13 by our current standards but it, it does get a little bit seedier. Uh, and you also get some great New York City uh, cinematography of like Broadway. Mm -hmm. And again, like those wet streets and just like the vibrant colors of, sorry, black and white contrast because you have all these vibrant colors going on. Uh, it is a black and white film. But Burt Lancaster's character, J.J. Hunsecker, gets um, Tony Curtis's character, Sidney Falco, wrapped up in a plot because uh, Hunsecker doesn't care for the guy, the jazz musician that his younger sister is about to, well, potentially marry, but in a deep, you know, in a relationship with. And so he enlists uh, Falco, the, the Tony Curtis character, to help him 
orchestrate this plot to like break it up. And the only reason that uh, Falco wants to do that is because he himself, um, you know, he knows the power that Burt Lancaster's character has and kind of holds sway over Broadway. So he's like, oh, okay, well, we can, I'll get this up and then I'm in with this guy and then my career is going to take off. So it's all just like this backstabbing and and plot not necessarily like plot twists but like the backstabbing and double crossing and you're not really sure who's on who's going after who and then yeah will this sleazeball actually have a line in the sand where he's just not gonna do something you're like i don't think he will you know but <laughs> so it's kind of this interesting back and forth and um burt lancaster's character in this one is so much fun to watch because it's not the way it's not chewing the scenery the way like a nicholas cage would chew the scenery but he just commands the the scenes that he's in not with like you know real showy acting it's actually pretty like subdued and subtle for the most part yeah uh, but like you can just see like the way people are acting around him like oh man he just like anything in his orbit is like i have the power i control this you get to see how little rumors can be planted in newspapers or in articles and then the ripple effects those have and just like yeah oh that guy's career is done now oh that oh, uh, <laughs> just now um but it's just fascinating kind of back and forth um the only box it kind of doesn't check for film noir could potentially be like femme fatale, but there's some female characters in it that are kind of, I mean, kind of, well, used. Uh, Tony Curtis uses several of them, um, specifically one character, which, you know, I don't want to do any spoilers necessarily for it, but it maybe is a little bit light on the femme fatale thing, but like everything else, the urban setting, the backstabbing, the anti-heroes, the bleakness, the paranoia, the rumor, yeah, uh, the power of people like it's all kind of there, but it, it, it does eschew that or eschew that um, private detective or, de- or detective story line for like a journalist line, which I kind of dig. Um, it was really fun. That's cool. And also, since we're checking time, this one does clock in at a hefty 97 minutes, so. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit longer. Uh, on this so what movie did you end up picking so i ended up picking uh this was you know true watch challenge you know i wanted to watch something for the first time and i have a long list of film noir um and as i mentioned the blacklist and communism yeah and hollywood ruined a lot of careers and the film i ended up picking actually ruined several careers <laughs> it's not funny but like i was like i can't believe the tentacles that like the house and american activities committee and blacklisting had even just over this movie in particular, I had not heard about it until I was doing some film noir research. It's called He Ran All the Way. Okay. John Garfield, a frightened killer whose luck ran out. Being hunted down like a mad dog, frantically searching for a hole to hide in. In a city where a man can lose himself among millions, find himself in the heart of a lonely girl longing for love. Thanks, I gotta go in now. Don't go. Hey! Don't go. Shelley Winters. She gave him all of her hungry heart. A love that rocks the screen with its dramatic impact. So it stars John Garfield, who is now in that tier with Burt Lancaster. I was like, oh my God, I need to watch all the movies this guy made. Let me do a little bit of the backstory to the movie, because the plot itself is fairly simple. So... The House on American Activities Committee and the communist uh, accusation angles here. John Garfield, actor. This is his final film. He died tragically young at 39 mm. of a heart attack. So this is the last screen performance that you're going to get from him. He came up through the stage and then he got his role in films early on. And he was in really early in the school of method acting. And, you know, the actor, uh, an actor prepares 
with Strasburg and, and that whole crew. So I feel like if this guy would have lived, like he would have been in the same sentence as Brando, I think, with the way his career could have continued. Sure. Well, he was blacklisted, so it would have taken a minute to rebound. But um, so, yeah, he was called before the House and American Activities Committee and he refused to name names and he got blacklisted. There's some writing about how that the stress of that um, and the accusation was there while this was being filmed. Uh, this came out in 51, was being filmed late 51 or, or late 50, early 51. So there's something about like, you know, did the stress of that uh, contribute to, you know, heart attack? Um, who knows? 39 is not the age you want to have a heart attack at. That's kind of that's that's very much on the young side. Director of this movie, John Barry, also blacklisted. Uh, speaking of Orson Welles, uh, John Barry worked with Orson Welles. He came up through the Mercury Theater and got a directing career going and ended up um, blacklisted as well. He went to, in exile to France and was directing some stuff there. And then oddly enough, the story of his career ended up being the inspiration for Guilty by Suspicion, the Robert De Niro movie about the Hollywood blacklist. So if you watch mm. that movie, I think it's Erwin Winkler movie, if I remember correctly. It's based on John Barry's life, the director of He yeah. Ran All the Way. The screenwriters, these are the last two here. <laughs> the screenwriters are Hugo Butler and Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo, notoriously one of the Hollywood Ten, uh, blacklisted. Also, thankfully, very, right. very strong-willed. Uh, kept writing under a different name. So did Hugo Butler. They used the, if you watch the movie, it says it's it's written by um, Hugo Butler and Guy Endor, which is the pseudonym that, or no, I'm sorry, pseudonym. It was a person, but it was a front that Dalton Trumbo still got writing gigs through. Uh, so a buddy of his, so, you know, let him, let him do that. But then Dalton Trumbo would write, yeah. what is it, Exodus and Spartacus, another Kubrick connection, and finally broke the whole blacklist open. And we're like, all right, we're done with this nonsense, right? right? All right, we're out of here. <laughs> so Hugo Butler and, um, and Dalton Trumbo uh, actually were even together in Mexico for a while, sort of in exile, but still writing um, for other people or under fake names in order to still have a career going. So it was like, damn, just every person I clicked on in this movie was like, blacklisted blacklist like jesus christ and i read that before watching it and it's really interesting to kind of keep that in mind as you watch um watch this movie the only person that's the star of this film um or associated with the film that wasn't blacklisted was the co-star which is shelly winters another actor who i knew from i think parts on roseanne the sitcom when i was a kid that the more i watch her early stuff i'm like damn like she can do everything, like every genre. <laughs> She's very, very young in this one. Um, the basic premise here is uh, John Garfield is a petty thief. His name is Nick. The opening scene, and I'm not going to do too much on this movie because there's all these great surprises, but like the hook, maybe first 10 minutes here, I think are fantastic and will convince you to click play on this one. Yeah. So he's he's a, a, a kind of a petty thief. He does a robbery with uh, his partner, partner in crime, literally. Uh, it's like it's a payroll day. So a car pulls in to a factory with like cash for payroll to pay everybody. Well, they rob that car, that guy uh, of ten thousand dollars. His buddy gets shot in the process. He shoots a cop in the process. And in order to go into hiding and on the run, he goes to a local like indoor swimming pool that's packed. So he just like checks in. Gets, he's just swimming, whatever. So like he's in this huge crowd. So he's totally masked. Right. He's he's. <laughs> Uh, pretty much anonymous in this pool. He ends up meeting Shelly Winters in the pool, teaches her a little bit about swimming or whatever, offers to walk her home. So they're clearly got some chemistry going. And then when they get to the house, uh, her parents are going out to a movie and her dad mentions how he heard about this robbery. And there was like a cop shot and some guys in the hospital or whatever. 
And so John Garfield starts getting more and more kind of sweaty and nervous. He's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, you know, whatever. And so he ends up taking the family hostage. Like they arrive back home from the movie. He takes them all hostage. He's like, well, you heard on the report. They're looking for me. He thinks cops are outside. It's total paranoia. And the dad's like, what are you talking about? All they said was there's a dude in the hospital. That's the guy who did it. And he's like, oh, shit. So he said too much now, right? Like he can't just walk away. He just said he was that guy they're looking for. He's pulled a gun out. So he can't just walk with this hostage. So the paranoia and the the worry that, you know, that uh, Nick has here, John Garfield's character has, well, now he's stuck. He has to he has to commit to the hostage situation and it goes downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice, lean 80 minutes. Uh, great, great black and white photography uh, from one of the greats. It was shot by James Wong Howe, who actually shot Sweet Smell of Success, was not blacklisted, um, but did experience a lot of racism because he was a Chinese born, uh, eventually American citizen cinematographer, hundred and like 30 films, 10 nominations, couple of wins, wow. uh, very, very storied career, little Rocky in the fifties when, you know, QX going and all that, there were some accusations at him and his wife, but, um, he was able to kind of keep himself employed and, uh, above the phrase that were from the, uh, the blacklist and all that stuff. But just one of those, like had never heard of it doing some research for the show it's on YouTube yeah. and a great copy clicked play. It's just like, wow, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> is that obscure as well for you? I, it was more of a deep dive. I wanted more like, well, we're yeah, gonna I classics, never, but I want to find something new here. I've never heard of that uh, until just now. So excellent. Uh, yeah. If, it, uh, if you've never heard of it, it, it doesn't seem like it's getting, I didn't see it on a lot of like, you know, film noir top 10 lists or anything, but damn, it's solid. And um it's a great one. Just walk into like, I only talked about the first, maybe 10 minutes of it. Um, yeah. just, just hit play and, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna have a good time. Have, have a fun time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what do you got, Mike? What's your, uh, what was your pick? Yeah. This one? So, um, I went with something, uh, a film that I've owned, uh, for at least a little while. Um, but, uh, this maybe sounds like a common theme with me, but had never watched yet. Uh, <laughs> well, the real question is, was it still sealed or not? It was not sealed. Okay. I, I will say that I did open it because um, uh, actually there there's like a nice little booklet inside. But um, sounds like Criterion. Yeah, <laughs> it is a Criterion um, from from 1946. It is Gilda by uh, Charles Vidor. There never was a woman like Gilda, or a picture like Gilda. Columbia's outstanding screen triumph, starring Rita Hayworth with Glenn Ford. That's what I told Bell, and that's what you're going to tell me. Making me deceive my husband. I got some news for you, Gilda. He didn't just buy something. He's in love with you. One man bought Gilda. Another hated her and hungered for her. I hate you, too. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. Darling. Gilda, inflaming men's hearts with a kiss or a song. Amado mio, love me forever and let forever One night she started to shim and shake 
that brought on the Frisco quake. Make her stop. What do you mean by it? Now they all know what I am. And that should make you happy, Johnny. It's no use just you knowing it, Johnny. Now they all know that the mighty Johnny Farrell got taken. And that he married a... Um, and uh, I think uh, I was first made aware of Gilda. I, and I think probably many people were first made aware of Gilda, if you're of a certain age, from the movie The Shawshank Redemption, uh, where uh, you have a scene where... You know, the prisoners are watching a movie and uh, uh, actually Morgan Freeman's watching a movie and um, Tim Robbins uh, approaches him and he's just like, you know, I I hear you're a man can get things. He's like, well, what do you want? He's like, I want Rita Hayworth, Um, you know, and it turns out that he wants the poster of Rita Hayworth. Um, So Gilda is your classic kind of uh, noir in which, um, you know. Gilda or, or Rita Hayworth plays the femme fatale uh, in between this, um, you know, basically you're introduced at the very beginning of the film to this, um, you know, a guy who's like, he's like a gambler, but, you know, kind of like a sleazy gambler, you know, kind of like is taking the, uh, the casino a little bit for a run, you know? So like, he's, you know, amassed like quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. So of course he gets pulled into the, into the office and then, by the end of the conversation, because he's so kind of suave, he ends up getting a job for uh, that particular uh, casino. And when he discovers that the uh, the casino owner's wife is uh, actually a former lover of his, um, so that that kind of like starts this. Um, it's kind of an awkward situation of how he got the job anyway, but now he finds out that his new boss you know, his new boss's wife is his, uh, his ex. And, um, they have kind of like this, there's this tension between the two and the, uh, the, the gentleman's played by Glenn Ford, uh, who, uh, later in his life played, um, uh, Superman or Pa, Pa Clark or, uh, Kent, uh, in, uh, you know, the 1978 Superman. But, um, Glenn Ford and Rita Hayworth have this on-screen chemistry. It's like a will they or won't they kind of thing, like throughout the movie. That is so like it's so sexy, <laughs> you know. For as sexy as as nineteen forty six could be, I kind of wonder if Paul Thomas Anderson was inspired by this movie when he made Phantom Thread, uh, because there is like Ooh. this there's this dynamic uh, between. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character and um, uh, Vicky Crapes's character—that yeah. is like they—they they have an affection for each other, but they also probably would murder each other <laughs> if they could. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, you kind of get the same thing here with with Gilda. Uh, so eventually, there is this—you know—it's I don't want to give a, a ton away in, in case yeah. um, some people haven't seen it, but. There is an event that happens that, um, you know, the two characters eventually get married. Uh, but almost like immediately, he basically is ignoring Rita Hayward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, like she's like always like enter- being entertained by other men. Or, uh, but now, like when they're married, it's like they, do- they barely spend any time with each other. And even when she wants to go out, he has like different henchmen basically 
making sure that she doesn't go out. It, it, it's like the weirdest thing, but it all come the way how it all kind of ends. It's like uh, it's like a happy ish ending, but it's like still kind of pretty dark. Yeah. And um, but uh, I I was really you know excited to to finally cross this one off the list. Um, you can definitely tell why. Rita Hayworth was a star. She owns absolutely every scene that she's in. Oh, yeah. um, there were a couple of times my wife and I were watching it. And we're just like, like, God, she is so pretty. <laughs> you know, it's like you just couldn't, you know, couldn't uh, take her your eyes off her. Yeah, and she, you know, she sings. She she does it kind of it all in this in this film, and um, you know, it's uh, actually on the the Blu-ray, uh, the the Criterion. There's a very interesting conversation uh, between two directors who absolutely adore this movie. One you can probably guess right off the bat is Martin Scorsese, of course. Of course. Uh, <laughs> you know, he loves everything <laughs> or every older uh, noir. But the other one who had a lot of interesting things to say about it, which I was really surprised, it was Boz Lerman, of all people. Oh. Um, you know, because like I, you know, I, I saw Elvis and I, you know, I've seen his other works, but, um, you know, he talks about how uh, Gilda really inspired him to make Moulin Rouge. Oh, interesting. So, um, or at least, you know, uh, shape the uh, Nicole Kidman character of Moulin Rouge. Actually, uh, I, yeah, I can kind of see that now that you say that. I wouldn't have said that, guess that ahead of time, but yeah, there's some elements to that. Yeah. It's interesting. But, um, you know, it, it, I mean, Rita Hareworth, uh, you know, the, the following year was in another really uh, another Orson Welles movie, uh, The Lady from Shanghai, which has that really awesome. Uh, oh, the mirrors, you know, mirror yeah. montage or that mirror scene. But uh, but I I think you know Gilda's probably what she's best known for. But uh, it's like what a commanding performance, and uh, yeah, I highly suggest this one. Um, you know, and I think I've I've done a pretty good job without spoiling some right. of the the twists along the way. She was also uh, so talented as an actress that she not only did some dance scenes with Fred Astaire, but she also had some with Gene Kelly and other movies. So like she did everything (laughs) and was spectacular in all of it. I really remember Gilda's like almost in that category of like hangout movies Mm -hmm. to me where like, I just had so much and it's been a while since I watched it, but I, it was so much fun just like watching mainly Rita Hayworth, obviously, but watching the, watching all the character interactions and just sort of hanging out. And then when it was done, like, what was that about? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. It, it was just, yeah. Kind of enjoy because it very few locations really. Yeah. And, and it is on the lengthier side of, of noir. It's a uh, oh, good point. It's, it's like an hour and 50 minutes. Ooh. Um, but I was never, I was never bored. Um, and, but yeah, you're right. It, it's like, to, to give an exact, like, you know, what does it all mean? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, it's one of those, you know, not, maybe not every movie has to tie it up in a bow and let you know what it's about. But, right, right. But, I mean, when you're with this kind of company, with these actors who give it their all, it was enjoyable from start to finish. Like on, on Letterboxd, the description or IMDb, like that's supposed to be what sells you on the movie. It just says a gambler discovers an old flame while in Argentina, but she's married to his boss. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
that's not gonna be to click play on anything. I mean, you got the poster there, and I know who's in it, so I'm like, I'm definitely going right. for it. But like, yeah, it's it's. Uh, are we really here for the plot necessarily? <laughs> but uh, anyway, so our official watch challenge picks for film noir noir November uh, yeah. are <laughs> Iran all the way and Gilda. Aaron, what challenge do we have for us next time? So our next challenge is uh, needle drops, uh, which if you're unfamiliar with that term, that's when like a song kicks in on the soundtrack just at that perfect like kind of punctuation for the scene uh, mm-hmm. in the movie. So we're going to take a look at some uh, the best needle drop scenes uh, that are out there in films. I have a feeling some 80s movies are going to be on my my list, but, you know, I, I will expand out of my reach. Well, I was going to say, too, that does here. limit us. I know uh, you'd mentioned in a previous episode being called out for picking too many recent films uh, <laughs> in certain cases. But it, just because it's a class I'm, I'm, I'm doing right now, uh, I mentioned The Graduates. I'm doing this class on New Hollywood uh, yeah. locally here. And um, needle drops didn't really happen until you've got, like, you know, the graduate or, you know, Martin Scorsese hits the scene or easy rider. We're like, we weren't using pop music to score films until we get to the late sixties. So right. for fans of the older stuff, we will get there eventually and with future episodes, but this is going to end up being a bit more of a modern, uh, modern look for sure. Cause the needle drop wasn't around in the forties <laughs> or in the silent well, if you era, want, <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, if you want to send us your picks for needle drops or suggest a topic or genre you like covered on a future show, please send us an email, watchchallengepodcast at gmail.com or in the links in the show notes. Till next time, folks, rate and review the show in whatever podcast app you are using. Tell a friend if you're enjoying it or like a particular episode, and we will see you with the next challenge. Mm-hmm.